I trained to be a pastor at Yale Divinity School, and if you've spent any time in New Haven, you might remember that around the university campus, there are pennants hung with three words listed in specific order, God, country, Yale. The implication being, of course, that part of our formation as students was indoctrination into a strict hierarchy of service to God, to America, and to our alma mater. Now, if each of us watching this service were challenged to make our own penance, we might find that, what, that they look somewhat similar. Maybe it would be God, country, profession, or family, friends, neighbors. But we all know that life is much more complicated than a simple ordered list, and that despite Jesus' caution that a person can't serve two masters, on an average day, most of us are juggling 20 times that, trying to discern which of our many important obligations take priority. It's always just struck me that despite the simple list on the pennant, it's wildly optimistic to think that serving God is as straightforward as serving country or a human institution. To serve an organization, we typically have guidelines and bylaws to abide by. Even in church, we have committees to staff, projects to complete, specific asks for talent and treasure. As we approach Veterans Day, we remember those who served our country by taking up arms or supporting those who did. Veterans or not, we all serve our country when we do things as simple as pay our taxes, when we vote, when we follow its laws or break them humbly with the hope that we build up more than we tear down. As humans, we instinctively understand what it looks like to serve human institutions or human nations, things that we can comprehend that directly benefit us, places where we can see cause and effect play out. But we know enough about faith to understand that serving God is something altogether different. God is not knocking on our doors, asking for our vote, or plastering flyers around our neighborhood with a list of campaign promises. God doesn't show up on the evening news feed or pull us over like some divine law enforcement officer when we've broken a commandment. Serving God is something like participating in a community of faith, but cannot be reduced to that. It's something like tending to a candle burning in the darkness, something like the splash of water hitting dusty feet. It's something like being crushed and lifted at the same time. Where our human laws are written in bullet points and numbered lines, the laws of God are painted in parables and poetry. And because they're story, because they're poetry, they don't give us a clear set of answers. In the mid-1700s, my great-great-great-great-eighth-great-grandfather, Christopher Sauer, came to Penn's colony from Germany. Like so many countless others, he came in search of safety from religious persecution as an Anabaptist. And in farmland that is now Philadelphia, he set up a printing press and published the very first Bibles in what would be America. When his neighbors joined the Continental Army to fight for independence from British rule, Sauer refused, citing his pacifist beliefs. Labeling him a traitor, his neighbors destroyed his business, they tarred and feathered him, and scattered the pages of his Bibles in their horses' stalls. Regardless of this loss, he never relented. 
Many years later, another German pacifist, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, decided after much study and prayer that he would join in a plot to assassinate Hitler. While he believed that God was on the side of peace, he could not see another way to stop the horror of the Third Reich. Two men, both trying to serve God, made two very different choices. Which one is right? And perhaps this is the point where we would turn to scripture to settle our confusion, but even a cursory reading of the Bible reveals a cacophony of voices, many of them contradictory. Take church and state relations. There are times in the Bible when the faithful are guided to respect and follow earthly political leaders, even those whom they might vehemently disagree with and to seek to do their will. At other points in the Bible, people of faith are instructed to rise up against unjust rulers and to disobey their laws. Many of the issues that divide us so bitterly, whether it's abortion or marriage between same-gender spouses, how we use or care for our planet, all of those are issues that the Bible brushes up beside in only the most nebulous of ways. Now over the generations, religious leaders and politicians have tried to sell people of faith uncertainty in these areas. But we do so counting on you not doing your homework because the Bible reveals no such black and white answers. And assuming that none of this is by accident, that the scriptures are divine and that how they're composed is intentional, then what might God be doing in choosing to speak to us in this way? Why not give us a clear set of answers? Why not say, serving me needs to act this way, to vote this way, to believe this way? What type of faithful people is created when so much is left up to us? I wonder whether in speaking to us in this way, God isn't creating us for three things, for remembering, for relating, and for renewing. Throughout the scriptures, we find that the act of remembering is very important to God. In a sermon a few weeks back, I spoke about how the very first commandment was to observe the Passover each year. It was a commandment to remember God's actions on our behalf. God, Jesus commands us to remember him in the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the cup. And in our scripture passage for today, Joshua begins his speech to the Israelites by inviting them to remember who they are and where they've come from. But he does this in this very curious way. Now he begins by citing Abraham, which we'd probably expect, um, but instead of speaking about Abraham's faithfulness or his blessing, Joshua makes a point of calling him out as a foreigner, as a second-class citizen. There's a wideness in this remembrance that I think that we can learn from, a refusal to, to bow to propaganda. I wonder sometimes if many of the divisions that we are experiencing in this country can be traced, at least in part, to a poverty when it comes to memory. I went to college in North Carolina, and it took me only a few hours on campus to realize that my Southern professors and classmates thought of American history very differently than I did. Now, like most Northerners, I had been fed a steady diet of Yankee education. The Union Army was right and good, the Confederate one was wrong, and was made up by people who were either bad or stupid enough to support the evil of slavery. And then I landed in the South, and I learned all about the War of Northern Aggression, a war fought about slavery, but also by real people, people who went to church and had dreams and loved their children. American history is brave young men storming the beaches at Normandy to fight against fascism, 
and those same young men coming home to burn black men alive for daring to stand on the same sidewalk. We as a people have come up with the most extraordinary scientific discoveries, discoveries that have saved untold millions of lives. And in doing so, we've used black and disabled bodies as guinea pigs in these efforts, people not worth the bother of anesthetizing before surgical experiments. We've preached the gospel of bootstraps and self-determination, creating what might be the most prosperous country in the world, while at the same time millions of our neighbors work full-time and cannot afford food or medicine. Now there are many who would want us to want us to feed us only on one side of the story or the other. But as Christians, we have to hold all of it together. We are a people broken and blessed, a people with a capacity to wound and to heal, to live into and to betray our highest ideals, to crucify and to be saved by the very same force. We remember not because we are a people bound by nostalgia, but because remembering is the foundation of action. When we fail to acknowledge what our neighbor has experienced, we fail to see them as God has created them, to see them rightly. And because of that, we fail to see ourselves as their neighbor rightly. And when we fail to see our neighbor or ourselves rightly, we cannot see the God who made them and us with any kind of clarity. To serve God is to remember with eyes wide open. To be divided as we are as a nation is deeply painful. But I do wonder if one of the gifts of that division is that over the past 12 years, virtually all of us have known both political success and political failure. Our government has swung so widely in the past four elections that if you've stayed in the same party for a little over a decade, you've likely known heady win wins and bitter defeats. Which brings me to my second point. How do we relate to one another as people of faith in the midst of division? In his letter to the Corinthians that's so often read at weddings, Paul reminds Christ's followers to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Which wasn't actually advice to couples, it was guidance for a very divided church. When there are lots of people trying to serve God in our own imperfect ways, we are going to disagree on issues of importance and in human institutions, disagreement comes with real wins and real losses. Now again, I'll say I wrote the sermon before we had any idea who won this election or if there'd be a winner, but with every assumption that today some people would be overjoyed and other people would be grieving. Now as humans, it's more than understandable that um, we would retreat to a, our corners after a week or even a year like the one that we've had to celebrate or to lick our wounds with like-minded people. But as Christians, our hearts are not our own. Now, if you are one of the ones celebrating today, enjoy it. Drink some champagne, dance around your kitchen, say a prayer of gratitude. But in your celebrating, remember that there are those who are weeping, who are part of this family, and they're hurting. And they're weeping not because they're awful and misguided people, but because something that they longed for deeply has been shattered. Take a moment, whether it's now or later, to hold these people in the light and to thank God for them. And if you're weeping today, be angry. Let the tears flow down and the rage roll over you. 
But in the days ahead, don't let your anger turn to bitterness or to hatred. Remember that grief can teach us if we let it. In grieving or celebrating, we must remind ourselves that who we are today, how we act today, is all there is. When Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land of Canaan, what they found was not a peaceful oasis, but rocky, infertile ground, still filled with all manner of threats. We may reach what we've aspired to, but we can never leave the wilderness behind. We can't gain enough power to make us meet we can't legislate our way to transformed minds and hearts. We can't hate our way into love. We have to serve God today in this moment, not just when we've reached an imagined finish line. Have we been, had we been created with identical minds, hearts, and ways of being faithful, life would be a lot easier. But in creating us with such diversity, humans who only ever have partial knowledge, God formed us to be a people who must seek out each other and care for each other. We seek God and serve God by approaching those around us with humble appreciation and deep affection. After reminding the Israelites of God's mighty work and drawing their grumbling ragtag band together, Joshua invites all of those gathered to renew their covenant with God, to choose God once more. And Joshua uses these splendid words, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a curious exchange because, um, because after he asked them to make this commitment, and then Joshua immediately reminds them that they're going to fail. Some of my first experiences leading worship were with people in the throes of addiction and sitting in those hard plastic chairs under harsh fluorescent lights and saying the prayer of confession with people in that setting always caught in my throat. Here were these children of God trudging through the most inhospitable of wildernesses who were asking forgiveness and being reminded of God's grace. And on the one hand, it felt like the holiest of grounds. And yet in the same moment, I wondered how many of them would just go out afterwards and shoot up another bag of heroin, rough up their girlfriends, whether in repeating my carefully scripted words, they were simply obliging this naive young pastor saying what they thought I wanted to hear. And as I repeat similar confessions week after week on my stately wooden pew, the refined sounds of organ music filling the air, I wonder similar things about myself. Will I go back out and do what I've always done? Am I just saying what I think God wants to hear? Do I have the willingness and capacity to change, to listen to any voice other than my own? There are days when the brokenness of this country, of the church, and of my life bring me to my knees, when I want to wail with grief, when nothing seems like it can ever be put right. With others, I wonder if we can survive this division. Are we broken beyond repair? And the answer in human terms is maybe. I don't know if we have the capacity to put this right. I don't know if we as a nation, as a church, have what it takes to live up to what we say we believe in. But God does. When God, Joshua called the Israelites to renew the covenant, there was only the briefest hope that they would turn their behaviors around, that they'd serve God above all else. But that moment wasn't ultimately about the Israelites electing God. It was confessing once more that God elects us, 
that each one of us was chosen and claimed by God and that there is nothing, no win, no loss, no form of government, no change or nation or success or failure that takes that away. God chose us. And if this choice depended on our faithfulness or on our success, we would be in dire straits. We are not capable of being the people who we aspire to be or creating governments that function the way that we want them to. But we are capable of remembering who God wants us to be and trying in all of our imperfect, broken, and stumbling ways to serve God, the God of love, above all else. Friends, today we have a choice. We can, retire to, we can decide to rejoice due to human wins or despair due to human losses. We can decide to serve those who think and vote and lead like us, deceiving ourselves that any voice that agrees with mine must be from God. We can harden our hearts and shrink our dreams. We can become cynical. We can forget. Or today we can remember. We can remember that the God who chose us, not because of who we are, but because of who God is, who is faithful despite the number and the depth of our failings, that God loves us still. We can remember that people of faith have lived, loved, and worshiped in empires and dictatorships, in socialist strongholds and monarchies, in the halls of power and from the voiceless margins. We can remember that what this world looks like doesn't determine who we are, and the call to love another, to love our neighbor, is still there, waiting for us to respond. We can remember that when one of us grieves, all of us mourn, and when one of us celebrates, all of us rejoice. That the key to making things right isn't in my hands or in your hands, but somehow woven through all of us by the one who whispers, you cannot do this alone. We can choose to worship the God of love three in one, as for me and my family and my church, today, let us choose love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.